0: I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's good news for imperfect people like you and me. I'm glad you're joining in today as we continue our journey through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. This is season three, episode five. And if you'd like to financially support this podcast, you can find a link to do that in the episode program notes. It'll take you to my podcast platform, which is called Anchor, and they'll walk you through it. So thanks so much for your participation and supporting Gospel Wabi Sabi. Maybe I think I'm gonna have to start selling Gospel Wabi Sabi t-shirts. I mean what do you think about that? Now, you can always email me through my website JeffEbert.com uh, It's pretty simple to remember JeffEbert.com As I said in previous episodes the author of this book was probably Solomon, the king of Israel around 970 to 931 BC. He was the richest and most powerful man in the Middle East at that time In the Mediterranean region, uh, Solomon was gifted by God with great wisdom, but there's a twist. That wisdom didn't translate into happiness or satisfaction in his life. He was wise enough to analyze problems. He was very good at that. He could see what was wrong, but he was not wise enough to figure out how to change the human heart. He can't even control his own impulses and desires. He's wise, but he can't even follow his own advice. I sort of hear an echo of Solomon in the Apostle Paul when he would say in Romans 7, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but the sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. So Solomon is singing the blues. He's definitely a glass is half empty kind of prophet who anticipates that God has got to do something, something to change the world because human beings alone can't. They need a savior, but Solomon writing some 900 years before Jesus doesn't see the solution yet. Partially because he had hardened his heart towards God and have disobeyed God in some pretty serious ways. And so far he's described sort of six roads that he's traveled to try and find happiness in his life. Those were wisdom, alcohol, kind of a party lifestyle, work, possessions, power, and sex. He had pursued each of those to the max, total excess, but he could never find this thing that would fill the void in his heart. He chased after each of these and discovered he was only chasing a fantasy, trying to catch the wind. Nothing worked, and his main insight thus far is that nothing really works unless God is in it. So let me be reading from chapter 4, verses 8 through 12, if you'd like to turn in your own Bible and read along. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? The one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Solomon was an if-only kind of guy. If only I could wave a magic wand over my life and have a little more of this or that, then I'd be happy. If only a little more money, a little more fun, a little more time off, a little more sex, a little more recognition, a little more power. But a little more of any of those things didn't work for very long because he got all those things. In fact, he didn't have to settle for a little bit of anything. He grabbed huge armfuls. He took as much as he could get, and it still didn't help. And if we're honest, we have to admit that often we approach life the same way. We tie our sense of happiness or satisfaction to something we don't have yet. We think I'll be happy when? When I graduate, when I meet that right person, when I get married, when I get divorced, when I have that promotion when the kids are older. When we can get that new house, that new car, when I can travel, when I can retire, I'll be happy when? And you fill in the blank. The thing that Solomon in all his wisdom didn't understand was that he was still the same person inside. No matter where you go, there you are. Whereas 15th century mystic Thomas a. Kempis put it in a spiritual classic on the imitation of Christ, you cannot escape. Run where you will, for wherever you go, you take yourself with you. Solomon got all the things he was pursuing, but he was still the same person inside. Nothing had changed. His heart was still far from God. His life was going away from God, and he couldn't escape from himself. Folks, that's the problem with self-reform. No matter what you do, you're still the same self that you have to live with. You know, sometimes people think, I could be happy if I just lived somewhere else. If I could move to the beach, or someplace warm, or go on that exotic vacation. If I had a different job, a different spouse... If I made more money and rise above all the mundane problems of life, then I could be happy. I mean, you could go to a deserted island in the Pacific as far as possible away from all the annoying people and problems in your life, but you take that same person with you, yourself. Your outward circumstances may change, but not the inner person. And that's where the change needs to happen. I think I mentioned this quote from Blaise Pascal before where he said, there's a God-shaped hole or vacuum in the heart of every person. And it can never be filled by any created thing. It can only be filled by God, made known through Jesus Christ. The frustration and dissatisfaction that comes in life comes because, like Solomon, we try to cram anything and everything else besides God into the center of our hearts. We're constantly jamming square pegs into round holes, and they don't fit. God says there's a different way, a different way to live, a different set of priorities, of values, a different kind of person that leads to greater satisfaction and meaning in life, not perfection, not total ease or absolute bliss in this world. The Bible never promises a stress-free, problem-free life, but it does describe a better way to approach the problems of this world, and that begins with Christ being at the center of your life, Christ the hub of all your life's wheel, and all the other things that bring it into balance. And so the rest of this episode, I just want to briefly explore one of the spokes on that wheel. One of the things that gives a Christ-centered life balance and stability. See, Solomon in all his wisdom didn't understand one thing. Didn't understand the power of relationships. For all his wisdom, he seemed to have this as a total blind spot in his life. He didn't see it. Two weeks ago, we saw in chapter two that he was so mixed up that he loved things and used people. God says it's got to be the other way around. You've got to love people and use things. Solomon had it backwards. He loved his gold, his buildings, his projects, his parties, his power. But people were just objects to him, objects to be used for his personal and sexual gratification. The fact that he loved things and used people is a glaring symptom that his life was out of whack, out of sync with God's will and God's way. Trying to live that way is like trying to drive a car with square tires. I mean, you could probably do it, but it's going to be a bumpy ride. And that's what Solomon was experiencing. No wonder he was singing the blues. We're made for relationships, and this is something we need to talk about more because it's important and central to the message of the Bible. We're made to be in relationship with God, our Creator, and out of that basic relationship we're made then to love, made to form friendships, made to bond with other people and family and church and community. The very first book of the Bible, Genesis, tells us in the creation story of how God blessed all creation as good. But the very first thing that God named as not being good comes in Genesis 2.18, where it says the Lord, God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Loneliness was the very first thing God said was not good. So God creates a woman, Eve, to be with Adam, man and woman, male and female. Then creation is complete, completed by relationship. Our human parents had God above them and creation beneath them. And side by side, they had each other, as friend, peer, companion, spouse, lover, confidant. They had each other to live together, to journey together through life. As human beings, were built, we're designed for love, for friendship, for community, for togetherness, for each other, built to be tethered together in relationships of family and marriage and friendship and Christian fellowship and community. So it's no wonder that's an area where sin does its worst damage. We want relationships that work, But sin gets between us and God and then sin gets between people. Sin always separates, always separates, brings bitterness and mistrust, exaggerated expectations, disappointment, misunderstanding, miscommunication, power struggles, controlling each other, people that turn relationships into a game where everybody loses. Relationships fray, they unravel, they fall apart. Healthy relationships are really hard to make and hard to maintain, hard to sustain over time entropy happens in relationships things tend to fall apart that's a law of physics tend to fall apart unless you add fresh energy to the mix you know you don't need to plant weeds in a garden they just happen you have to push back against that for the garden to be healthy entropy means external forces put pressure on relationships on a marriage a friendship a family society's stressors those hit relationships the hardest whether it's the economy or changes in moral values, changes in lifestyle. Just the fact that we live in a very mobile society makes relationships harder. A hundred years ago, people rarely strayed very far from the place of their birth. So relationships lasted a long time. Now just count how many times you've moved in your life. How many different places have you lived? Each move makes it harder to maintain those relationships. And as a consequence of both human sin In societal change, loneliness is epidemic in our day. Mother Teresa, who was known for her work with the Sisters of Charity, with the poor and the dying in the streets of Calcutta, India, she diagnosed it this way. The greatest disease in the West today is not TB or leprosy. It is being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. We can cure physical diseases with medicine, but the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. There are many in the world who are dying for a piece of bread, but there are many more dying for a little love. The poverty in the West is a different kind of poverty. It is not only a poverty of loneliness, but also of spirituality. There is a hunger for love, as there is a hunger for God. A hunger for love and a hunger for God. Those intertwined needs are at the core of our search for meaning in life, for happiness, for satisfaction. Really, they were at the core of Solomon's search as well. Solomon, we're told, had something like 700 wives and 300 concubines, and not one of them loved him. He could pack his palace with 20,000 partygoers, and none of them were a real friend to him. He had advisors and aides and servants, and none of them could tell him the truth. He could buy anything he wanted to buy except the affection of his own sons, who hated him and inherited all his bad traits, so that almost as soon as Solomon's body was in the grave, they split the nation of Israel in two in a bloody civil war and destroyed all that Solomon had accomplished. You see, Solomon was so focused on being at the top of the pyramid, he forgot that the top of a pyramid is a point, and there's only room for one. There was only room for Solomon and his ego. What troubled him most deeply is that he didn't have anyone who loved him and who could share in all his accomplishments and share in his life. Every new success, every new possession, every new conquest just pointed out with greater intensity the loneliness of his heart. So in chapter 4 he turns his attention to observe other people and he sees that other people are experiencing something that's missing from his life. Love, companionship, friendship. He's almost like someone observing an ant farm. You know in a glass case he sees what's going on but he's detached from it. He's studying the little guys to see what makes them willing to get out of bed in the morning And this is what he sees. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can they keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, and a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. This is actually one of the more familiar passages from Ecclesiastes. It's frequently read at wedding ceremonies to describe the beauty and strength of a covenant marriage between a man and a woman with God as the third party. But this passage is not really about being married. In fact, marriage is never mentioned in this section at all. This is about the importance of all healthy human relationships. As one commentator puts it, this passage is about relationships for people in a dog-eat-dog world. Simply stated, people are stronger together than they are apart. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. There's a synergy that happens when people are bonded together through friendship or companionship that enables them to handle life better than if they were trying to fly solo. It's like migrating geese. You know, you look up, you see the V-shaped formation that geese use when flying. That actually serves an important purpose because it maximizes their energy. Each bird flies slightly above the bird in front of him, resulting in a reduction of wind resistance. The birds actually rotate and take turns being in the front, falling back when they start to get tired. And in this way, the geese can fly for a very long time before they have to stop and rest. They can fly much farther together than they can fly alone. They get a better return for their labor. There's an old Swedish proverb that goes, shared joy is a double joy, shared sorrow is half a sorrow satisfaction and happiness in life don't come by just enjoying the, the, the joys and surviving the sorrows alone. It is in sharing both with others. Solomon describes this in three ways. He says, if you fall down, there's someone to help pick you up. So simple, but a lot of people don't want to admit that they need help when they fall. Their pride gets in the way. They can't accept that outstretched hand. The rugged individual who doesn't need anybody's help, that's not God's way. When we fall on our faces, we need a companion to keep us from being too bruised and bloodied and wallowing in self-pity. We need a friend who will not walk away. As a culture, we like winners. It's much harder when we lose and go through loss. It makes people uncomfortable because it shines a mirror maybe on their own securities. And that's why people can have such a hard time talking about cancer or death or suffering. It hits their own insecurities. We need other people when we're exposed, when we can't warm ourselves, that's just a basic survival tip if you're ever out lost in the woods at night in the cold. You've got to huddle together to preserve body heat. We need people when we, ungu- when we are unguarded, when we are vulnerable. We need the sense of security that comes through mutual protection when we feel attacked. When there are rumors or lies or gossip, when people are playing power games at the office, nothing steals your joy like working in a place where you can't trust your co-workers, where you're surrounded by people who are jockeying and scheming for the next job, or not to get laid off. Whenever people get together, there's always the potential for meltdown and great grief, but there's also the potential for great things to happen. Great companionship, great friendship, great love. We need an ally, someone who picks you up, who warms your heart, who watches your back. What's great about today is that we can even do this at a distance. Technology enables us to have significant relationships with people who are far away. We learned this during the pandemic, most of us. We can see, hear, talk to, email, communicate with people who can be in our supportive network, even though they're halfway around the world. We can even do this for others as part of our mission outreach. Uh, The people who want to stay connected with the Amistad orphanage in Bolivia that I support, they're called prayer friends. And I can't tell you how much it means when the children know that somebody actually cares for them and prays for them and sends them letters. The same thing is true as like when you sponsor a child through World Vision or Compassion International. That relationship can make a world of difference halfway around the world. A long time ago, I taught a class on J.R.R. Tolkien's great trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, that many of you have read or you've seen the movies. The first book in that trilogy is called The Fellowship of the Ring because it's a story about the power of friendship, the friendship between Frodo and Samwise Gamgee and the other loyal companions who joined them on the beginning of their quest. Tolkien, who was a deeply devoted Christian, he created that group to symbolize the power of Christian fellowship, the power of that small circle to get people through the obstacles of life. Tolkien modeled his group of adventurers around the 12 disciples who followed Jesus because he understood that that is one of the main purposes of the church, to provide healthy community, healthy relationships, so people can grow strong in their faith, find satisfaction for the hunger in their souls. This hunger for God, the hunger for love. That's why he put it so much importance on small group ministry. That's how a large church stays small enough to care for people. That's how people grow best, by being with other like-minded believers, sharing each other's burdens around the Word of God. I hope you're that kind of friend. I hope you seek out relationships that are not just one directional, that go both ways, where you're able to receive support and encouragement, but you're also able to give it sincerely when when it's needed and when it's wanted. So who catches you when you fall? Whose friendship or love warms your soul? Who's got your back when the chips are down? Well, just remember what Jesus said to the 12, his inner circle, because I think he says the same thing to you this day, if you belong to him. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, but friends. Have a great day.